Follow me, some people own stocks. Welcome to Playing Footsie, the podcast where we talk about stocks, investing, and personal finance. Before we start, we want to make it clear that the information presented on this show is for informational and entertainment purposes only. None of us is a financial advisor, and this is not financial advice. Investing in the stock market comes with risks, and we strongly encourage our listeners to do their own research and consult with a licensed financial advisor before making any investment decisions. Now, let's dive into the world of finance and talk about what we're doing with our money. The sucker's going up. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Show. I'm Steve W. I'm here with Steve D. And we've got a very special show today. This show is all about requests and questions that we've been asked that we thought we should answer. So if you don't like the show, it's probably your fault. You should have asked better questions. But do ask us some more and we'll do another one of these at some point in the future. But let's get things started. Let's get straight to the question. Steve, question one. Are you all right? Yeah, not too bad, Steve. Um, it's... Uh... It's uh, as ever quiet week. I guess I can uh, I can say that one with absolute confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm not doing too bad, Steve. Uh, how about you? How are you doing? I'm all right. As equally confident, I can say pretty busy, pretty hectic week. There's always seems to be loads going on here. Um, nothing much worth talking about at the moment, though. So uh, let's get straight to it, Steve. We always like to talk about things that we've consumed this week. If we see anything interesting or anything worth talking about. We don't always spot something, but um, it's often the case that we we do. And in this case, both of us have this week. We've seen something that we thought we would like to share with you that might be worth a, a look. So, Steve, kick us off. What have you been consuming this week? So I, I've been consuming Duck, um, which is um, Diary of a CEO. Um, depending on what you think of, uh, of Stephen Bartlett uh, from Dragon's Den, you could change that seat to a whole number of things, Steve. And uh, I... I, I quite often do this podcast is normally awful um and it's normally just ends up into a two-hour quote fest without much substance and uh but this one's pretty good um it's got an awful title and it's a proper clickbait title and it sort of shows you how bad the podcast is in general uh the podcast is called the savings expert do not buy a house how to turn a hundred pound into 1.5 million with ease now, you'd be surprised to learn that this podcast has Morgan Housel on it. And Morgan Housel uh, does not tell you not to buy a house. He does not tell you how to turn £100 into £1.5 with ease. Um, so where they get that from is is beyond me. But it's a pretty good little uh, to and uh, back and forth. Well, it's not really a back and forth chat. Stephen Bartler has nothing of interest to offer the discussion at all other than fire some questions and say that he's read the book um, and basically try and... F- fire chapters of Morgan Housel's book back at him and, and ask for a little bit more information. So Morgan's, Morgan is definitely the star of the show. Uh, Morgan um, um, spits out some pretty some pretty decent information, uh, talks about his old book, talks about his new book in, in, in quite a lot of detail. And uh, it, it's worth listening for Morgan alone. I mean, there's a 15-second skip on uh, all the things Stephen Bartlett says. And uh, if you use it, you can get through this uh, hour and 57-minute podcast um in about an hour uh but i would recommend it anyway because i think it's it's pretty good even with stephen bartlett in it he's um he's on a bit of a book tour at the moment morgan housel isn't he but you seem to be kind of tracking him uh pretty well i mean it's not the first time you've come up with a morgan housel thing that you've been listening to or consuming is there much in the way of new stuff on this or is it sort of themes that you're familiar with i mean even i think by the way that how to turn a hundred pound into whatever you said one and a half million with ease is is a bit clickbaity, and I write for the Motley Fool, right? I mean, you know, we have standards there where you're not just allowed to write anything uh, in the name of clickbait. 
yeah, it's a complete joke title. I don't think it even gets mentioned in any way, shape or form. And the only place Morgan Housel really talks about housing is when he's saying when you're young and without children, the chance to being, you know, being able to hand the keys back and go live in a different city is great. But when you have a family, you should look to settle down and put roots down. Do you know what I mean? Because that's more important. That's kind of what he says. He doesn't really say don't buy a house. I mean, he says if you're thinking about buying a house as an investment, that's statistically a terrible idea. Um, But he's not telling you not to never buy a house, which is what this sort of title says. And he he doesn't say anything about turning £100 to £1.5 million with ease because... Like Morgan Housel would never talk about those things because there's no such there's no such thing. Um so and I wouldn't even call him a savings expert either. So I think the whole the whole title's absolute horse shit. But um <laughs> which which fits with the general standard of the podcast, to be fair, apart from this one episode. So um so yeah, I don't know, Steve. There is some new stuff in it. Sorry to get to your original question. Um say the the, the talk about same of ever uh, same as ever, sorry. Um, uh, it's quite interesting and you'll learn a few new things about Morgan's book ahead of reading it um, I think it's a, for, for people who are interested in finance it, it is a probably a must read like the psychology of money is probably a must read um, so um, so yeah it's it, it's a fairly interesting um, podcast and I, like I say I wouldn't uh, expand beyond uh, this episode though yeah there is a good sense in which a lot of what Morgan Housel writes about isn't that particularly changing he's a sort of uh investing savings finance principles guy uh, and they don't really kind of shift around how you apply those principles might change from environment to environment business to business earnings to earnings quarter to quarter whatever but a lot of the general sort of principles that he thinks about tend to stay reasonably fixed i'm always fascinated when we talk about these consumption things steve because it feels like you and i never talk about what we're going to say about these things beforehand occasionally we will say what it is just to make sure we haven't literally picked up the same thing. But there's so often points of commonality between what we are consuming in any given week, because I've also been listening to a rubbish podcast that has a good episode that I quite like and would recommend actually for people to look at. I've been looking on YouTube at the Prof G Markets show, which is Prof G, Scott Galloway, his kind of weekly podcast or so. And usually I'm, I've written that I'm not a fan uh, of this show. He looks to me like a terrific egomaniac uh, with a sort of a stooge with him. So there's him and his kind of uh, what looks like his kind of long lost son or something. Um, and they discuss things and, and more or less his, his lackey feeds him questions for him to air his opinions on. Um, and, and I sort of get, by the way, that uh, people who are quite good at one thing, he's a very, very good marketing um, expert. He knows an awful lot about that. Then get tempted into thinking that because they're smart at that, they must be smart at either a bunch of adjacent things, which he isn't, or, or generally everything in the world, which he isn't. And if people feel like I get into the same situation with that, by the way, I have some sympathy with that idea. I feel like I get out over my skis sometimes on this show. But he very much does it for a living. And you see a real kind of cult of self-ego coming through uh, on this on this show quite often. Anyway, so um, this week I thought it was much better, the episode that I listened to, because he had a guest on. Uh, and his guest was very, very good. His guest was a guy called Morgan Hatton. No, uh, his guest was Aswath the Modern, who is, uh, I think, strictly his department colleague at NYU Stern Business School. Um, like I say, I'd listened to Galloway on marketing. I wouldn't take his views with anything else uh, on anything else with any great seriousness but Demodoran was talking about a kind of review of Q3 what we've learned from earnings which are still coming through actually from Q3 at the time we 
record this, but what there has to be seen on this. And it's really interesting for someone who um, regularly kind of uh, trumpets his own views. Mostly his minion kind of agrees with him. And when he doesn't agree with him on stuff like Amazon and antitrust, uh, Galloway basically shouts him down in what are, I think, fairly unedifying scenes. But Demodoran isn't so easy to shout down. Uh, Demodoran is at least at Scott Galloway's level and probably seven or eight levels above him. Uh, and everyone on that show knows it. Uh, whenever Demodoran pitches up anywhere on uh, whether it's CNBC or Galloway's podcast or anywhere else, to be honest, he is usually the smartest person in that room, uh, bar nobody. And I thought Demodoran had some really interesting views. I like him because he thinks about investing the way that I think about investing, which is not to say that we are alike or anywhere near alike in terms of quality. He is a miles, miles, miles better version of me. But broadly speaking, he thinks about things with the same sets of principles. And he had some very interesting ideas about Tesla, uh, which he is sort of more positive than you or I on, uh, Steve, in terms of things they might do in the future and is actually prepared to give them some credit for that. Um, Alphabet, which he is much less positive on because he raises an interesting question of of thinking, well, why is it this company can't execute on anything other than a search engine? Uh, there are really smart people here. Why the hell can't they do something else by now? Everything else is just hidden apart from Google search in the finances. Um, and antitrust, where he, and not quite in so many words, but Hans Scott Galloway has asked. Uh, Galloway has um, written you know, books and done book tours and various series of talks on how the big tech should be broken up and so on. And Demodran just drives the coach and horses through this idea. Um, points out that, look, the main reason for antitrust is that there's harm to the consumer. But at the moment, consumers can't believe their fucking luck. Um, people get all kinds of things with an Amazon Prime subscription. They've never been happier about it. They absolutely love Google. They like Apple iPhones. And they're um, pretty much delirious but pleased with Netflix because they keep signing up for it in their droves. So the usual claim that there is harm to the consumer because pricing power has got out of control and prices have gone through the roof just ain't true uh, in the case of all this antitrust stuff. I mean, whether they can make that stick for another reason is kind of open to discussion, but this is kind of Galloway's big thing that he's sort of fairly famous for, his his stuff on the four, uh, as he calls them, kind of meta alphabet, um, Apple and Amazon. Um, and I quite enjoyed uh, watching, again, I go back to the sort of someone who I agree with over someone I don't uh, type of thing. But I did very much enjoy watching Demodoran finally speak some sense and and watching Galloway have nowhere to go, uh, really, on this. I, I find the show, I will say, very, very entertaining. There is a usual pushback when I complain about other podcasts of, and yet here you are watching it. And I think that's very fair, uh, to be honest, because if I write something in the comments that say, this guy's an idiot, uh, people point out, well, why are you still watching then? And, and usually the answer is because I find it quite entertaining, um, is the fact. And Galloway, I think, is a genuinely entertaining guy. He he's tells some horrible jokes, um, but uh, not horrible, sorry, isn't offensive, just, just outright bad. Uh, but um, I enjoyed this particular episode of his show because I thought Demotion was a terrific guest who finally spoke some sense into that thing. Yeah, I think with Galloway, you have to be prepared that you're going to be listening to a 55-year-old muscle-bound man refer to himself <laughs> as the dog um, yeah. quite a bit. Yeah, so if if you're okay with that, you're going to be okay with this show. And I mean, he has, uh, for for somebody who is so sure of his opinions, he has a prediction track record of Kramer. Um, <laughs> I don't think uh, any of his opinions have uh, have really come through. And I, I did try to read his post um, Corona book 
and uh, because I, I, I like you, I find him quite entertaining, and and I'm in that school of thought that I, I should read from people I agree with and and don't agree with, and I think that would be that would be beneficial to me. But his post Corona book was like because I read it after Corona, and he wrote it during Corona to think about the the, the world after it. He's so wrong, so early. He's so wrong on all the things he's called, and you just think to yourself. Am I just gonna waste my time like flicking through this book? So I'm about three or four chapters in, and I've popped it on the side, and it is in that side where you say to yourself, "Yeah, I'll I'll pick that up again." But I bet you, in ten years' time, I, I haven't. Um, I've even put the dust jacket back on on it, to be honest, Steve, because I really don't think I'm gonna pick that book um uh, back up. And it's strange when you pick up something like. And I know that there's no comparison whatsoever, but I'm reading The Black Swan again at the moment from um, Nassim Taleb. Mm-hmm. And that is a wonderful book. Um, just wonderful from uh, just how uh, Taleb is equally uh, as, as confrontational and as opinionated, but he's he's so right and he backs it up with absolute... Um, and, and he does it in an abrasive way as well, but he, but he is... Um, he he just backs it up with evidence, Stephen, and it, that's the difference between sort of Galloway, who I see as a bit of a loudmouth, and Taleb, who is a a loudmouth but also has sort of like science and maths behind him. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Whenever Galloway doesn't understand something uh, going on in the world, which is is sort of reasonably often, you can see how often it is. Um, he tends to just kind of blame it on capitalism, or ascribe it to capitalism, or say it's capitalism, or that's capitalism, or, or whatever. Um, and he has some sort of slightly strange ideas about capitalism. He also tends to use words that he doesn't know the meaning of, and therefore use them incorrectly uh, in some cases, like the word subjective, which doesn't mean what he thinks it means. But um, look, I would. Just to be clear on this, I'm beaten up on this show quite a bit. I thought that episode with quality and in general is one of the most entertaining podcasts that I've um, heard on the on the airwaves, um, bar pretty much none. There is a reason that I keep coming back to that, even though I think um, I, I have another great long list of complaints written down here about it. And I think they're all pretty good ones. But, 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 but worth a listen. Um, ordinarily for entertainment value, absolutely. You'll enjoy it, I reckon, if you enjoy this show alternatively for um, this particular episode where I think there's some really good insights to be got out of it. Anyway, um, Nassim Taleb's class, by the way, uh, his stuff about uh, anti-fragility is also wildly misunderstood, but we shall rant about that another day. Uh, Enough of the complaining segment, Steve. Uh, Let me give you a chance to answer a question with a question. Um, What question have people been asking you about um, investing in stocks and the like? Yes, yeah, so we had a question from Mr. Yaz on uh, YouTube, and he asked us to take a look at Rickett Benkiser and to well, Rickett Benkiser Group, and to um, see what we thought, Steve. And you know, I was only too happy to do so, Steve, because there's uh, there's quite a lot of um, there's quite a lot of history behind this company. So we're going to forget Benkiser's history for now, Steve, because it doesn't involve Hulk. Uh, Reckitt and Sons, as it was known back then, uh, was founded in 1840 when Isaac Reckitt rented a large starch mill uh, in Hull. And about 22 years later, he sadly died uh, and left the business to his sons, Francis, George and latterly James, who those in Hull will know rather fondly as he is quite widely recognised in the city um, and uh, and to recognise quite widely in the uh, Gad Village area and was. Um, 
he, there's a there's a whole street named after him. It's James Rickett Avenue. This was built by the Ricketts, and uh, it was built by them to properly house uh, their management uh, and staff in in decent accommodation. The original mill site uh, in Hull is is still used by Ricketts to this day, but it's it's now manufacturing. Um, so we'll fast forward through all the other history because it doesn't involve Hull. Um, the now Slough-based consumer goods company has a harem of successful brands. And uh, I've got some names for you, Steve, just to wet your whistle. But we've got Airwick, Calgon, Silit Bang, Clearasil, Dettol, Jurex, Gaviscon, uh, KY Jelly, uh, Nurofen, Vanish and V, which is used for getting hair off your balls. Um, Reckitt sells about 30 million of its products per day and is one of the bigger companies in the FTSE 100. It's about number 13 as I write this. And its biggest competitors, I think, are probably Halion at number 17, which was recently spun out of GSK, number 8 in the FTSE, and Unilever, which is number 4. So I thought, why not, why look at, why not look at all three, just to make a comparison? So I think Unilever probably has the edge on brands. Uh, they have um, Axe, or Lynx, as we call it, Ben & Jerry's, Sif, Domestos, Dove, Nor, Hellman's, Persil, Vaseline, and Walls in its portfolio. Um, that's the ice cream, not the sausages. I don't know if they're the same brand, but I can't imagine they are. Uh, Halion, I think, probably has the worst of the three, but it still has brands like Sensodyne, Polydent, Centrum, Panadol, Chapstick, and Voltarol. In terms of financials, Ricketts brings in about $14.45 billion in revenue last year, generated about $2.33 billion in net income. Uh, it's about a $49 billion market cap, $6.8 billion of long-term debt. Uh, TTM, that gives you an earnings of just under 18 and a forward dividend yield of about 3.41. If you bought this stock five years ago, Steve, you would have paid a bit of a premium, uh, and as such, you'd have lost about 12% total. Uh, if we compare that to Unilever, it's not faring much better. Uh, it's lost you 6% over the last five years. You do, however, get a trailing 12-month P of now under 14 and a forward yield of 3.89. About $7.65 in bottom line profit, but you'll have to be prepared to suck up the $22 billion debt pile Unilever have wrapped up making some questionable acquisitions. Thankfully, one of the things they were stopped from buying was Halion, uh, offering £50 billion for the now £30 billion company. Whew! Halion, out of the three, trades uh, quite a premium, and I presume because investors think Unilever is stupid enough to come and return, uh, but it actually trades at a 25 PE ratio trailing 12 months uh, for just about a billion in profits last year. Although this bottom line is actually expected to grow about double the speed of the others over the next few years, so that, that may explain some of it. Halion was lumped with a chunk of debt, as all spin-outs often are, took 10 billion of GSK's long-term debt as part of the move. So all three of these brands have flexed a bit of pricing power over the last 12 to 18 months. They've all raised prices by about 10%. And all three of these have enjoyed only really minor hits to volume, if any hits to volume, in doing so. Uh, so expect some pretty good um, short-term growth here uh, on top and bottom lines uh, if, if this continues. So comparing against these two, I think Reckitt is pretty well positioned. I think there's definitely flexibility in its balance sheet to go out there and buy some new brands. Its CapEx is well controlled at about 3% of revenues, and these revenues should grow up mid-single digits over the medium-term um, future. That's FX neutrally, of course. And there's also about a billion pounds in buyback happening, Steve, as we speak. So which of these three would I buy? And the answer is none, because uh, I actually think Nestle is uh, is probably the one that you should be considering. So despite choosing to axe the Caramac bar recently, I think Nestle is best positioned of the lot. Their brands are 
some of the best consumer brands in the world and their part ownership of L'Oreal means they have access to brands such as Garnier, Maybelline, Vici, perfume brands such as Stella McCartney, Diesel, Armani, Ralph Lauren, Yves Saint Laurent. And their PE at the moment, Steve, if you're looking on a forward basis, is just over 19. And for that, you'll get high single-digit sales across all geographies and categories, about $8 in free cash flow, a 3% dividend, which you'll lose 40% of. And you would have made about 16.5% over the last five years. So Nestle is a pretty interesting business. It's really focused on this sort of DTC commerce model, which is growing rapidly. It's now about 17% of total revenues, not paying that cut to the middleman. I think improves Nestle's margins really long term. So Steve, they're the four that I've been looking at. Are you going to go craft? I I probably will go craft in in just a moment. It feels like, especially if we get to craft, we've now gone kind of stepwise, starting from what I mostly associate as being a cleaning products uh, company when I think of the likes of Dettol and stuff, albeit also there's personal care in there with things like, um, I think you said Durex and Clearasil uh, as well uh, with Reckitt. And we've managed to go kind of towards Unilever, which is a mix of foodie stuff and uh, personal care stuff via Helion which is also kind of personal care, but I'm not sure it's a kind of cleaning products thing in the same way. They have a kind of consumer drugs arm with Nurofen. Um, and then all the way to Kraft, which I think is just uh, a food company, basically. So so it's sort of interesting to my mind to think about these as slightly different sorts of things. You mentioned the Unilever Halion thing, uh, or Halion, Halion, however you pronounce that. Um, I I stick by my thought here that I can't work out who the the bigger idiot was out of Glaxo and um, Unilever. Unilever for trying to buy the thing at 50 billion or Glaxo for stopping them, uh, basically, because I know it IPO'd at less than that. So they they would have done better in some way by selling it to Unilever, I think, if they really wanted rid of that. Unilever are after it because they considered it to be a sort of growthier version than what when I was writing about it at the time, I struggled to not call their stagnant food business, which gives you the wrong impression of the, the quality of their produce, I guess. Um, but the point was it's not growing at top line uh, level. I'm impressed by Reckitt, uh, though. I'm impressed at the company's ability to um, raise its volumes here with, or raise its prices without really cutting into its volumes because I sort of wonder as to how brand loyal people are in that sort of space. I don't think of myself as particularly brand loyal. When I look at cleaning products, I tend to buy, I don't know, I think I'm going to chuck them on the floor or whatever and uh, and and I don't much care, uh, to be honest, if they all say they're antibacterial or whatever, I, pretty much all I all I look at here. So I'm impressed by Reckitt's ability to kind of hang on to their margin effectively, which is pushing through something like an inflation-ish uh, price increase without losing their kind of um, revenues on this one. So, so I think that's impressive. I think, what did you say the forward yield on that was? I missed it. Three point something uh, as a yield. On uh, on. Records is three yeah. three point eight nine. Uh, sorry, no, that's Unilever. Sorry, mm. uh, it is three point four one. Sorry, 3.41's not too bad. I mean, if you can find the growth there, and I think you probably do need to find the growth there. Uh, well, in fact, I know you need to find the growth there. It's trading below the level of a bond, and that's okay if you think a bond is gonna um, uh, fail to grow and eventually expire. If you think, well, look, go wreck it now, and you can start behind and more than catch up in these kind of things. I'm okay with that argument. They do need to find that sort of growth. And that's that, I think, is a sort of trickier bit um, here. Reckitt's not a company I've looked at terribly often, but, but I can see a, a kind of world in which I sort of like it as a defensive. I struggle with these things at the moment, though, because when we're in 
uh, an area where we think, okay, so it's just been ticking up a little bit lately, but in general stuff has been getting ground into the dirt by rising interest rates, especially things that are economically sensitive. Reckit is not, um, not much anyway. Uh, and actually it's been in quite a good job of showing to its credit that it's not. It's fairly robust, fairly resilient and can pass through price increases for inflation. In that situation, I tend to think now might be the time to be looking more at cyclical things than at kind of general defensive um, things. It strikes me as a strange time to be to be maybe buying there unless you can think of a particular reason. I'm uh, I'm sort of impressed by their um, buyback, though. I, I like seeing companies buying back stock when they're this kind of business and it's hard to do much to uh, to force through growth other than marketing spend. So. So I view Reckitt positively, but I think it's watch list for me at the moment rather than buy list right now. It's trading at a premium to the market. That's the problem that you have at the moment, I think, is that you're looking at this FTSE 100 overall and saying Reckitt's been a very poor performer over the last five years and it's trading at a still at a premium to the market. Its growth is unremarkable. Um, does it Does it deserve that that premium to the market I, I would have to say no if you're buying it as a defensive steve it's it's done its job for you um it is essentially flat as we yeah uh, if you if you bought it in 2021 and you wanted something that was flat it's it's down 10 percent, but that's not the end of the world in a uh, in, in an inflation environment you'd have done much better in something like records than you would in something like teladoc uh, which goes without saying, but it's done a fairly decent job of that. And I guess when you add that dividend back in, you know, you're talking about perhaps only a, only a small loss or uh, all told. But I just don't see the point of it at the moment. I don't see why I need it. What, what, what do you think? When I think about the FTSE 100, so if I think about its kind of immediate index, I'm not sure. I kind of. I think it might be um, able to hold up better than the market in terms of earnings for the for the foreseeable. When I think of the FTSE 100, I think of mostly insurance companies, banks, and uh, mining companies. Bless you. Um, but when I uh, look at those, I sort of think, well, those are wildly cyclical businesses. If inflation does kind of come under control or we get a recession, I can see commodities prices coming off and I can see a lot of the um, earnings going backwards on uh big miners like rio tinto and anglo-american and, and so on but i can i wonder whether there's enough of that to kind of put it at a to its immediate um index uh, okay moving forward slowly might be might be quite attractive at the moment justifying some sort of premium when i look broadly and more globally i then start to really struggle um i then think okay so if you're looking at 20-ish times earnings uh, it feels like there's a premium to be paid there for good earnings visibility. And I'm OK with the idea that earnings visibility is relevant. But I think at this stage with where I'm at and I'm looking quite a way down the road with a long term sort of view, um, I would be a bit wary about that idea. I think if I were a short term investor looking for if I were retiring like now and thinking I need passive income now, basically time to stop uh going to stuff with a 30-year view and time to start going into it with a two-year view i would be buying either a bond or more likely some preferred stock in something either lloyd's or aviva stands out to me here if i were looking further down the road i'd probably look to just try and uh i don't want to say buy the dip but look at something that's a bit more worn down uh, at the moment but i think might recover well over the next few years with a bit more of a tailwind behind it which i don't think is wreck it at the moment no, I think um, in terms of sort of packaged consumer goods company, which I'm loosely calling these three 
if I mm-hmm. had to pick one one of those three, I would probably go with Unilever because it's the cheapest. Uh, the new CEO doesn't seem to be as trigger happy as the old CEO, but he seems to be getting punished uh, in the same way. So uh, we have to see on that. I think Halion is overpriced. I don't think the growth will meet a 20, 24 PE. I think Reckitt is slightly overpriced for an underperformer, and I don't see where the massive growth comes from in the future. I guess out the three, Unilever. But I still, like I said earlier, I, I still think Nestle is probably the best the best brand, um, uh, you know, if we were to widen it to four. Certainly, if you look at... Before we move on, a quick one from Steve and me. If you're enjoying the show, please do give us a like, a comment, and a rating on whatever platform you're listening on. And make sure you share the podcast with your investing friends. It helps us a lot, and we're really looking forward to building out something that you guys can get some value from and that we can have some fun in making. So do like, subscribe, and back on with the show. The sucker's going up. Over this side, yeah. I mean, you asked if I was going to... Uh, if I would take craft here against the field, and and the answer is I would. Um, I think brands wise, it's probably weaker than some of the others, and it certainly doesn't have the global reach that some of these other things have. When I um, when I was listening to quite an old now Motley Fool uh, podcast, and they were discussing kind of brand value and how much do you really care about brands in this sort of, especially packaged food space. Um, Maria Gallagher, who was on the show, then came up with pretty much the same answer that I came up with uh, in my own mind when I thought about these things, which is I care about them almost not at all unless they're Ben and Jerry's, um, which uh, is is quite powerful uh, for me. I, I really feel like I can taste the difference between their stuff and the other things that come in similar shaped tubs. Um, Hagen does is also pretty good. Actually, I do like that. But Ben and Jerry's just has better flavors uh, to my mind. They position themselves in a more interesting way. Um, that said, uh, I quite like Kraft Heinz. I was looking at their most, re- I quite like Kraft Heinz. I quite own Kraft Heinz. I really ought to like it at these, um, levels and I bought it more expensive than it currently is. So I ought to like it better unless something's gone wrong, which it hasn't. Um, so Kraft Heinz, since their earnings report market like this, uh, they're up 5%. Admittedly, that's from what I think was quite a low base. So I'm now green on them in my invest and red on them in my ice, which makes it harder to buy it on the side that I ordinarily would. But uh, revenues for Q3 came in at $6.75 billion, which is a mighty growth of net 1%. Um, North America, which makes up 75% of their uh, revenue base, so they really are US focused, by the way, was down by about half a percent in terms of revenue. The rest of the world, which is, well, uh, fairly obviously the balance, uh, because you ain't selling anything in somewhere America or outside the world, um, was up 5.7%, and that gets you to sort of net one or so. Uh, mostly what this was, was price increases. They tried to raise them by 7.1 and volumes went down by about 5.4%, getting you to about a 1% on balance push, uh, further forward here. Earnings per share came in at 21 cents, which was down 40%, uh, from the previous year, mostly due to one-off impairments. So what do we do when we get one-off impairments? Steve, what do we do to the number then? Just knock it off. Yeah, we adjust it, basically. So we didn't like 40% down, so we thought we'd adjust it to 72 cents, which is up 14.3%. So there you are, adjusted EPS. That is adjusting for a one-off impairment. Um, uh, It was up 14.3%. Guidance for the year is looking at 4 to 6% revenue growth. So I guess you have to call that mid-single digits. If that's not mid-single digits, I don't know what is. Um, Highly possible, I don't know what is. 
Uh, EPS looking for about 3% higher. They're looking in the region of $2.91 to $2.99. The share price after that 5% bump is 33. So you're looking at a price earnings ratio of about 12 going forward, depending on where they fall in that range, maybe 12, 13. I like this because I think it's cheap. Uh, basically, what you'll see in there is that they um, have an interesting approach. They've uh, since they were acquired by uh, or merged Kraft and Heinz together in their deal involving Buffett and 5G and uh, oh sorry 3G uh, not 5G uh, 3G uh, capital they went on a massive cost cutting spree and they realised that when you have brands you can't really do massive cost cutting because you're supposed to like market things to help push your brands along. Uh, since then, they've gone for investing behind their brands, and that is helping them to hold their margins up pretty well. So I also did a bit of comparing, but I didn't compare it to any of the things that you mentioned. I compared it to a bunch of other food companies that I could think of, which were General Mills and Kellogg's. Operating margins at Kraft Heinz are around 17%, and they're fairly stable there. Uh, they're actually fairly stable at General Mills and Kellogg's as well, but they're slightly lower. General Mills at 15% and Kellogg's at uh, just under 11 This is um, Kellogg's of old. It's not a uh, brand-new box-fresh Kellanova growth machine thing. Um, so one thing that I've always thought, why was my reason for buying this? I'm not expecting massive growth out of that top line, and I'm not expecting massive margin expansion. What I said I was expecting was a huge improvement in their balance sheet, and we've had it over the last three years. They have got themselves down to uh, net debt to EBITDA of three times. Uh, the reason we focus on EBITDA is partly because that's what your net debt gets paid out of, or your interest and stuff gets paid out of. You can't focus on that afterwards, because that's where you pay your uh, kind of interest from. That's high for some companies and not for other companies, uh, to be honest, is the way you would look at this. But what it usually comes down to is earnings visibility. A company like Kraft Heinz will be reasonably predictable going forward, it means they can run a slightly larger debt pile because it's fairly clear that money's coming in. Something that's a bit more cyclical like um, Polaris, which is a stock that I quite like, uh, a kind of um, power sports company, they may well find their demand falls off in a recession, so they hadn't better find themselves needing money in order to stay afloat uh, when that kind of thing happens. Um, analysts were saying at home, anytime there's a decent push towards at home stuff versus restaurant stuff or eating out, then Kraft Heinz will tend to do quite well. Uh, that to me makes reasonable sense. I also think they'll do pretty well anytime there's a drive towards eating cheap uh, in places like McDonald's because they supply into them. So demand going steady uh, there, I think, is probably encouraging in the event of a recession. I think there's more people trading down to Kraft Heinz than there are trading out of Kraft Heinz. And as I've said before, I think they pass my kind of Aldi test for whether a brand has any strength, which is are they stocked in random shops like Aldi who want to flog you uh, and will definitely try uh, to flog you off brand stuff. A lot of Kraft Heinz stuff does uh, appear in that or Heinz stuff in particular, which was kind of surprising um, to me. But I was encouraged to find it there. So I think there's some sense of brand power here. Um, and that improving balance sheet, I read an article from one of the US Motley Fool writers that said, look, now they've sorted this out, they can go off and acquire stuff. <sighs> I guess it speaks to our differences of uh, approach here that my uh, my original hypothesis was now that they've finished doing this, they can go and buy back some stock or boost their dividend. Dividend has been flat for ages. It's close to 5%. Uh, might be a touch either side. Hasn't gone up, hasn't gone down in quite a while. Uh, since it had a massive down, but they've managed to re uh, reset their balance sheet fairly well whilst keeping that dividend going, which I think is sort of uh, commendable in some ways. That's my pick for this sector, Steve. Um, uh, just lump it all in behind a Buffett put. I'm just looking 
through their PowerPoint presentation, Steve, which is actually a really good business update um, for people who are interested in how a consumer goods report should look. This is pretty. This is pretty good. And I just thought I'd have a scroll through and see if there is anywhere that Kraft Heinz is actually growing at a reasonable rate. And quite surprisingly, net sales is up 8% internationally and actually 10% in emerging markets here. So um, a little bit later on, I saw that they've actually only got 5% um, share in emerging markets uh, at the moment as well. So uh, that's quite a bit that they can uh, they, they can target there and, and continue to grow. They actually highlight that as an area that they're really looking to, to attack as well. So uh, interesting that they could... Um, I mean, I'm always looking for a growth engine, and they're all, and I know a company are always trying to highlight which which part of their business is their growth engine. But here, it could be um, a good place for Kraft Hands to maybe go out and do some useful acquisitions here. Steve is is sort of Latin American brands, or um, they mentioned that their their sales are quite soft in Asia here. But it could Asia. I mean, you wouldn't imagine these brands are going to be massively expensive for them to. To, to sort of like pick up and tack on to Kraft Heinz is that is that a good idea do you think that they maybe wouldn't have the expertise to run these brands or is that something you could buy in I'm, I'm really unsure of the, the market itself they've been doing a tiny bit of acquiring they've acquired a spices company but I think that's more American focused than anything else I would like to see them try and do this by acquisition I think if their plan is to to move into emerging markets i worry a bit about in ways that don't really well, the reason i worry is because they don't really make any sense to me the kind of lack of portability of brands so leaving craft Heinz aside uh, for the moment cadbury uh, is a pretty good example um that's huge in this country and they don't really go for it in the u.s hershey's is huge in the u.s and in this country i well I think a lot of people feel my way, which is, I think, is rubbish, um, that it's, it's significantly worse than uh, Cadbury. So so trying to export Kraft's existing, uh, or Kraft Heinz's existing brand base isn't obviously um, a, a kind of winning strategy here, I think. And there's something, uh, a part of it that tells me that, look, if 75% of your sales come from North America, that's wildly disproportional uh, to sort of just generally where people live. It's not the case that 75 of the world's population is in north america and 25 percent of it is sort of everywhere else so i think there's some there's a kind of important lesson there of knowing where their brands work and not trying to export them to places they don't want to go and that tells you okay if you want a, a bigger presence in latin america emerging markets the uk wherever uh go and buy some brands that are um that are kind of prominent there of course i guess if you go back through this company and don't worry too much about the identity conditions of a company they did buy Cadbury back in the day. I mean, Kraft bought them and then sort of spun them out into Mondelez uh, again, but that was before the kind of merging stuff. But yeah, I think I think if I'm looking for expansion here, acquisition would be the strategy I would prefer. Um, Got to do that at the right price and in the right way. But there is also scope of being under that Kraft Heinz umbrella could uh, could add value in a certain way, which would allow them to uh, pay a bit of a premium, perhaps. But um, growth was sort of low on my ideas here i was happier with them kind of sticking to their uh, sort of brand defending uh, strategy for marketing their marketing spend has been going up and up and up and on the face of it that's a concern but when you kind of wind back the clock what you see is that they really suffered for a while 
as a result of neglecting their brand spending and their marketing. And it's, I guess, in many ways, encouraging to think, okay, we're removing costs carefully here uh, rather than soon um, or quickly, something like that, I think. Um, I should just double check, actually, who it was that asked us to talk about Craft Heinz or afterwards to ask me to talk about this one. I had notes on this a little while ago, but I... um, this was Steve Steve W. The, uh, Steve W. Who is not me uh, on the trading two one two thing. This is not like a. I mean, if it was me, I'd find out something more creative to come up with, like a sort of plus aerobic type thing. But Steve W. On the trading two one two forum, who every time I look at his stuff, by the way, I have to think, is that me? It's not me. Um, <laughs> uh, but he he's appears in quite a lot of your uh posts and stuff um steve either commenting on them or upvoting them which is it's all good stuff and and helpful for um i suppose your ego as well as your bottom line yeah definitely steve there's some bollocks in this report i can't let you go without going through some of this bollocks oh, go on. so uh, there's a whole thread here uh, there's a whole sorry whole page dedicated to what can only be described as management bollocks it says investing in marketing r&d and technology which earlier on they did they did say that they are spending quite a bit on r&d steve but in 2021, they reckon they could get 400 million in efficiencies. Efficient, oh bloody hell, that's hard for me to say. Efficiencies mm. by um, launching a digital factory, uh, then doing KH dash KH value and KH worth, and then assembling some agile teams. And then in 2022, they wanted to expand that uh, to another 400 million by using disruptive innovation, KH insight. And uh, looking at the product lifecycle, they also wanted to launch some agile boot camps and a partnership with Microsoft and Google. And now, Steve, they think there's another 500 million they can save by doing adoption KPIs, fast products at scale, a one innovation engine, uh, measuring NPS. uh, Then it just says ecosystem. And then it says commercial capabilities. Now, that is a thread full of pictures, full of a timeline. And absolutely no information what any of those things are. I can help a little bit with that. Um, I can tell you some of the disruptive innovation that Kraft Heinz has been producing. I can't tell you which of those many categories or acronyms or whatever it falls into. Um, before is I it do the that, source dispenser? It's not the source dispenser. Well, it was uh, okay. The source dispenser is part of it. But, um, that's not the the thing I had. Uh, why don't you tell people about the source dispenser, Steve? Since that's uh, disrupting your restaurant experience at the moment. <laughs> well, I spotted it. There is a uh, there, there. There's a. Uh, Have you actually you know, seen like one? The, yes. The, no, I've seen the pictures of it on oh, the, right, the okay. slide. So, like the the Pepsi mix machines, where you mm. can you can pick the Pepsi flavor uh, and the, the the your you know that you desire. They have a Heinz version of it where you can pick the sauce you desire, and it has a little you know the little paper tubs that you you put under to fill in. It it, it does look semi-ridiculous steve but i guess i can see how it would work in a sort of food service environment um i can see how it would work i can't see why anyone would want it i feel like um i feel a bit like i do about pepsi's uh, version of this thing which is if you think you should mix these things together shouldn't you do it for me rather than kind of having me do it and the answer is pepsi do of course right they sell like pepsi max lime and and all the rest of them which uh i rate quite highly actually but um that's one of the many disruptive innovations that we've come up with uh, we yes we at craft heinz uh lately here are two more um we've come up with pickle flavored ketchup um today uh i say today i saw that today and this is what happens when you sign up for the like uh weekly dive things that i get you see all the latest technology coming out of this and we've also developed what i'm going to call a machine i'm not going to call it a machine actually because i'm not sure it's a machine we've come up with a device which may or may not um be a box 
but the idea is you stick your food in it and you stick it in a microwave and it comes out like you cooked it in an oven, but at the speed of a microwave, right? So what's the downside to microwaving? Pastry and stuff comes out like crap um, because it basically gets ruined. But if you can put this in and put it in like a microwave and have it come out like it was in an oven in that amount of time, I mean, this is like cutting edge technology, right? I mean, why do we want partnerships with Google for? Google can't do anything. What are we going to have? Craft Heinz Search. Uh, and that's basically it. That's that's all Alphabet is good for at the moment. Um, what we need is more kind of groundbreaking innovation, like whatever that was you said, K H dash. Um, that's what that's coming out of. I've decided. So sounds great. Should we go to another company uh, that is famed for its technological innovations? Oh, I'm not sure I can handle any more technological innovations, but go for it. <laughs> Well, this one came from uh, Alec Coplin, who reached out to us on Instagram, and he said, "Could you take a look at pets at home?" And so I drew the short straw, and um, and here's what I, I found. So this is a FTSE 250 stock, uh, and surprise to me, uh, or maybe not surprise, but I, I was surprised to remind myself, I guess. But it's been a remarkable winner over the last five years. Um, it's up about 150%, and it would be a lot more because it's actually 42% off its peak. Uh, and despite this, it's still only about $1.42 billion in market cap, and for this you'll get... 457 pet stores, 339 groomers, Steve, and 444 vet practices from their Vets for Pets brand. Um, both sides of the business are actually doing okay. Stores creating about 100 million, uh, 100 million of operating profit last year. That's about a 7.5% op margin. And the practices brought in about 52 million of op profit. That's actually over 42% margin. So you're getting ripped off at the vets. Um, top line growth, Steve, is okay. Um, retail's growing at just over 7% year on year. The vet side is much stronger, growing at about 16.3%, which is great. That's arguably what we'd want with those margins. And valuation wise, you're looking at about 14 times earnings. Uh, that's trailing 12 months. Uh, and about the same looking forwards as the actual earnings are only improving marginally this year. So just under 14. Uh, in terms of the balance sheet, Steve, there's 120 million in debt, about 180 million of cash, and 50 million of that is currently being spent on a buyback. They are shock horror, Steve, committed to paying a dividend too, with Chairman Ian Beck, who I revealed to Steve, signs his name like drawing a penis, uh, re- recommended an 8% lift in the dividend, bringing the total yield to a pretty healthy 4.35%. Um, I had a look at the CEO, Steve. Um, she's relatively new into the role. Her name is Lisa McGowan. She's got a very impressive track record. She was the head of Sky's initial foray into mobile and led Sky Broadband in the UK. And she's trying to bring some of that sort of omni-channel focus to pets at home. Her goals are to grow sales at 7% per annum, medium term, uh, to improve profit uh, before tax by a 10% CAGR at uh, medium term, move free cash flow conversion to about 70% of PBT. And along with that, she wants to keep that dividend chugging along. So a uh, quick glance, they're, they're definitely heading in the right direction, consistent growth in their VIP services and their VIP revenues, and the revenue and pair employee are all growing strongly. So if this VIP services can sort of close the loop between uh, a pet shop and the vets and get consumers spending regularly on both, then I think pets at home might well have cracked this. Uh, broadly, before I before I pass it back to you, Steve, I had a look at the market, and I think it's about seven billion in size. That's food, vets, and glittery collars. Um, pets at home have about a twenty-four percent share of the pet care market, uh, and I think that's a market that's quite fragmented. Um, so it's quite impressive that they've they've managed to grab so much. 
market in the UK is quite mature and yet uh, is still um, is still growing by about 8% per annum. So there's going to be a market share here for pets at home to grab. I think I've talked before on here, I've definitely talked to Steve about the humanization of pets. Uh, and by that, we mean it's pets are really becoming like a fair member of the family. Uh, and as such, the UK has actually trended towards providing um, better diets, better quality foods, more focus on wellness and supplements, better health care, better dietary requirements. And it now includes gifting as well, Steve, for the for the pet birthdays. Um, so look, a company that's prepared to embrace all of these sort of things and trends and offer a, a holistic in-store and online experience and has a you know, Pets at Home has a really good run at this market here. A 14 times earning, it's it's priced to do no better than the UK market at home, when realistically, I think it's quite easy to put a much better path for Pets at Home here. Uh, Steve, you're not a pet household. Have you ever set foot in a Pets at Home? I have not uh, set foot. Oh, yes. No, I'm wrong. I think I have set foot in a Pets at Home. Um, you will not be impressed by the reason why. Uh, I think I make a pretty much annual trip to a pets at home. The reason being, we start playing cricket in like April and it smashes it down with rain and we need sawdust and we never have any. So it's always off to the nearest pet shop, which is a pets at home. Uh, so we can stick that in all the muddy bits to try and dry them out so we can actually play without falling over and turning everybody's ankles. Um, I said no, because I, as you rightly point out, we are currently a pet-free household. Um, we have an interesting choice, which uh, I'll come back to in terms of remaining uh, pet free. But um, I don't think I'm making a significant difference to basically anything uh, to do with pets at home with my annual custom, uh, which I charge back to the, the club that I play for. But what I will say is uh, that new CEO's um, ambitions here seem quite impressive. I'm not saying that they're necessarily that difficult. They might not be. But what I do think is that if she manages to push the top line along at um, 7% and has a buyback going on for, did you say 150 million on a 1.4 billion? No, what did you say? 15 million. Just 50 million. 50 million. That's more like it. Um, but still, 50 million is about 3% or so. Um, yeah, on, something yeah, like that. Yeah. Uh, of that market cap. So you'll find the share count comes down. That will help push the growth along. You'll happily push that dividend about along at... Um, uh, 8% or so if you can keep your margins intact and if you're starting at 4.35 you're currently higher than any of the stocks we've talked about so far I think and growing faster than them as well um, on top of that you get to be in a nice defensive space uh, so the question I was coming back to or, or the, the issue around being pet free that I had is it, there's two things that people kind of irrationally spend their money on kind of hell or high water and one is their kids and the other is their pets and maybe that's not irrational by the way maybe you have like duties towards these things that are your uh family in either the biological sense or in the uh kind of living with you um sense here but people will regularly and this is a kind of well-worn trope i think for investors they will happily go without themselves before they get their kids or their pets uh go without and in many ways that's a very nice thing uh, about people but it's even better if you're a pets at home um the reason that's relevant to us is that i think we get quite a lot of childcare out of my parents uh, at the moment. It's it's not um, massively long at any given moment, but it is fairly regular. Uh, my mum is especially afraid of cats. I think she's just genuinely phobic uh, of them and isn't a big fan of pets, pets in general. Um, so I think we have a choice then, basically, between care for the little one and getting a pet. Um, and I think... He would probably choose the pet, if I'm honest with you, over his grandparents. But he's unlikely to win this argument because uh, we can't say, oh, it's all right, we've left him with the dog. 
Um, at least not for the time being anyway. It's going to be a few years until that's the case. So um, I think we're unlikely to get a pet, but I think those are some very impressive numbers from pets at home. Strong looking balance sheet as well, right? You're not going to get into any difficulties. And even if you did find a cyclical downturn, this looks to me like the kind of company that can afford to um, run slightly levered and isn't doing so. So I'm impressed by that. I don't see any reason to lever up either. I don't I don't see any anything that I mean they want to just basically open a couple of you know a couple of stores a year so they've got a lot of time to select the right places to make sure that they've they've got the footfall and to make sure that the the area is completely suitable. So um I don't think there's any need for them to um to do that. I mean if they wanted to go out and buy things at uh, a popular um vet um you know, popular vets are they going to be expensive to acquire? If you wanted to say the the the, the vet market is massively fragmented, and you wanted to, you know, you wanted to go out and make just vet stores, I don't think that's their plan. They like the vet stores to be part of the supermarket because then you walk through the pet supermarket to get to the vets, and then on the way out, your dog nicks a toy off the thing, and you have to buy it, and you think, well, I'm here, I might as well get some food, and you know, I'm running low on litter, so I'll get some litter, and you end up with a boot full of stuff. I think it's a sensible, a sensible idea. Um, and they're making really good margins on the on the vets. So even if you don't buy anything in the store, um, yeah, it's it's not bad. The, one of the things that I did realize when you look through the presentation is they're very heavy on staff training. They want to be a holistic center for advice, healthcare, and the products. Um, so the the staff are staff are heavily trained in making sure that they dish out good advice and they know sort of common problems and they can they can offer that advice. And I think it's um. It's probably a good idea, Steve. I think it's the same sort of idea that Best Buy tried in America when Amazon came in and uh, basically threatened to close that business down. That business decided to double down on the advice side of it. So there was a time when people used to go into Best Buy for the advice and then go and buy the TV on Amazon. But that evidently hasn't been what what, what has happened for the vast majority of people because Best Buy is still doing pretty well. So, um, And I think Pets at Home has an opportunity to do the same steve mm, exit through the gift shop um so i i agree with you about the levering up point i think it would make no sense for them to lever up it would send a very confused message wouldn't it which would be yeah we'll buy back in our stock with uh 50 million or uh whatever and we'll also try and dividend out more and more because we can't find a use for any of this cash and and buying back and dividending out is perfectly sensible uh, if that's the situation you find yourself in Oh, but at the same time, we'll take on a load of debt while it's expensive uh, to go and do other stuff with. That, to me, doesn't make an awful lot of um, sense. That sounds like quite a confused uh, message. I would rather, if I were a shareholder in this business, that they stopped or held it back off the dividend for a year or stopped that buyback or, or something. Um, but... Look, they're not doing that. Um, they're they're not, um, you know, going out and taking on debt while they're um, claiming to have spare cash lying around. They seem pretty intelligently run. Gosh, those are some impressive uh, forecasts. I think this is one that I find it hard to make much of a bear case against here. I would do it by telling you that how much does this market, uh, how much scope does this market have for growth? We're coming out of a pandemic where people all were getting pets and so on. Stuff is getting more expensive. Will we see the number of these things going down? I doubt it, uh, to be honest. I think this company's shown it's pretty good at being resilient here and that when it has cash, it can do things to make a durable impact to its own earnings per share, which is um, smart, I think. So I'm really impressed by this one. Uh, so I'm, um, I'm interested in having a closer look here, I think. 
Yeah, I'm right with you, Steve. To be fair with you, I when I got this one to look at, I was thinking I'll just whistle whistle quickly through this one and then um I'll uh, you know come up with an opinion and then I can leave this one and never think about it again. But actually, I sat there on the couch thinking potentially there's something here um for you know for a ten percent return, which is if if that's what you're looking for. I think with a uh, especially if they manage to get that seventy percent of free cash flow uh, conversion from PBT. Uh, continue the buybacks, continue growing the dividend, and then just continue growing the business at the rate that the market's increasing, uh, or just below. Um, that's um, that's not a million miles away from a ten percent return, Steve. Either that, or and the, you know, if that doesn't happen, if the stock price doesn't appreciate, you're just going to get a cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper business. Um, and then eventually, and there's no guarantees, but eventually that has to snap back at some point. Someone would have to look at that and say. This is underpriced. And well, I think that's it does kind of partly because yeah, management yeah. is smart enough to buy back stock when it's cheap. Absolutely. Uh, in that case, yeah, and if they yeah, either that share price moves higher as a result of them buying it back in at a smart time, or it doesn't, and they'll buy it back in at an even smarter time. Yeah, absolutely. And that buyback amount gets bigger and bigger and bigger as well, Steve. If they can continue to co- to to convert, so um, yeah, I think it's a pretty impressive business. It's now sat on my watch list for sort of further consideration. And thanks, Alex, sure. for, su- for suggesting it. Yeah, I think it was uh, yeah, a pretty interesting one. Yeah, that's a really interesting suggestion. Shall we talk about another company that's doing buybacks, Steve, uh, while their share Let's price goes down and down and down? Um, when you were talking about uh, Reckit, you used a really interesting collective noun. I can't remember what it was. You said they had something like a haroon of interesting brands. Uh, what was the word you used there? Harim. Harim, sorry. Is that the collective noun for interesting brands or brands or something like that? Why not? Uh, sure, why not? Okay. Um, well, I'm going to talk about a bank uh, in that case. I'm going to talk about NatWest Group because uh, Tom's personal finance friend of the show on YouTube has um, uh, asked us to see what we think of NatWest, which is down quite significantly since the start of the year, but uh, even more so just recently. Um, do you know what the collective, collective noun for bankers is, um, Steve? Does it rhyme? No. It's okay. a wunch. It's a wunch, as in a wunch of bankers. Uh, get it yeah 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 you're in the right area to be honest um but yes uh so the bunch of bankers over at natwest and i'll try and keep saying this as many times as i can without getting it wrong and see if, <laughs> if i screw it up you can try and edit it all out for me um yeah the bunch of bankers over at natwest have been having a difficult year their stock is down 27 percent year to date uh the stock currently trades at a p ratio of um 4.25 has a dividend yield of 7.79 percent but all of our viewers including tom and his personal finance channel are smart enough to know that you can't just look at those low numbers and go see what a bargain um so why is it down so much uh and actually it's been down for a number of years now by the way fun fact when i was at primary school um before i was at primary school my mum basically stopped working uh to look after me, which was a terrible idea for a number of reasons. But um, when she went back to work, she did a bunch of sort of part-time random odd jobs and then settled working as a cashier in NatWest. And their share price has never recovered since, as far as I can tell. But um, aside from that weighing on the stock price, she's long stopped working there. So that excuse is out the way. There's two big issues that has been going wrong for them um, this year, as far as I can tell. Or you can divide them into two. 
ones that are not specifically their fault and ones that are specifically their fault, which is a good way of covering basically every reason available. But here's the ones that are not specifically their fault. Interest rates are getting high to the point that it's not funny anymore uh, if you're a bank. So last year, interest rates were going up. And that was great because you could actually charge people money for mortgages rather than having to give them free money uh, in order to lend it out at any rate at all and spreads between what you pay out on savings and what you take back in on uh, mortgages are widening. Um, now it's reached a point where that's not such a tailwind anymore for banks in general, but NatWest in particular. So what they found in their most recent trading update is that their margins are compressing because savings rates are going up faster than mortgage rates. Whoops, that's bad. Why mortgage rates demands has fallen off a cliff, which is what's weighing on uh, property prices at the moment. Turns out if you just raise the interest rates on mortgage rate, you know, mortgages indefinitely, people stop taking the things out. Um, who knew? Anyway, uh, the other issue going on is that loan losses are going higher over the first nine months, which is what we saw in the most recent update. That was a kind of Q3 inclusive update. Um, the amount for loan losses is about double what it was last year. So spreads are narrowing, margins are getting worse, and they're starting to lose money on loans as they go bad. Um, that, in fairness, is not a NatWest specific thing. That is a bank general uh, thing. And uh, OK, NatWest are in that sector and not every company in the world is. but. Um, it's not just them that's dealing with that, but they have another problem. And like a lot of people, that problem is called um, Nigel Farage, who is um, another banker of a sort. Um, he, uh, NatWest subsidiary, uh, Coots, which is basically a high net worth organization, attempted to close some of his accounts earlier this year. They claimed that he'd fallen below the minimum threshold for net worth to qualify for a Coots account and were therefore closing it. Um, we can discuss the rights or wrongs of this. There's some speculation it might be to do with his political uh, leanings or um, uh, general political views, I guess, uh, and affiliations. I don't think this is the case. I think if there was a problem about Nigel Farage's political views that a bank was worried about, they would have worried about it a long time before now. Uh, that's not new. Might be the case that his net worth has fallen below. I wouldn't know, and uh, nor should I. It's none of my business. Unfortunately, the CEO at the time earlier this year, Alison Rose, Dame Alison Rose, no less, decided to talk about it with a BBC journalist. And it's also none of their damn business either. Uh, that's a GDPR breach, whatever you think of um, Nigel Farage. Um, so there's an internal investigation going on into the one trip bankers that work at NatWest. Um, what this shows at any rate is a lack of internal controls at that company. What's that lack of internal controls? Did someone say Credit Suisse? Did someone say Citigroup? Yeah, we're in that kind of category uh, again. Things that look cheap uh, and probably have the scope to turn themselves around unless they're Credit Suisse, in which case uh, they're dead. Um, but what you're kind of seeing here is a stock that's reaching, well, let's say new lows. I have an idea it might be reaching a bottom and that's therefore an interesting time to buy it. Um, they are currently buying back shares and the rate their share price is going, there's not going to be any left for anyone else to buy if they keep trying to do share buybacks, um, or at least there wouldn't be. But fortunately, their largest shareholder is still the UK government, who owns quite a lot of that bank and has done since the 08-09 crisis. Um, the government is in a slightly awkward position here, and it's, it's awkward for both parties. The government can't get rid of those shares very easily because if you drop that many onto the market, you'll tank the price. So whatever you're kind of claiming the government's stake is worth, it won't be worth that if they suddenly try and sell it. It's what Charlie Munger calls good until reached for, basically. Sell that lot, you won't get the price for it. Um, it's also bad for NatWest because there might 
come times in your banking life where the one trip bankers that you have need to do something that would be politically unpopular. And that's quite hard if one of your big shareholders is the government. They might well not want you to do it or might make it harder for you to do it. And since they own you, uh, they can do these sorts of things. Main tailwind I can see is interest rates are at least levelling. Um, they're not continuing to go up indefinitely. Bank of England says it's not thinking about cuts until 2025, but that's still some way away, at least for the time being. Um, they'll be holding things flat and and looking while uh, it's not the case that that margin continues to narrow and loan defaults continue to get worse as higher rates continue to weigh on mortgage demand, I guess. Maybe. We're looking at higher for longer. That's good for margins, but it's not good for volumes in these kind of businesses. So I guess, uh, gun to the head question, am I interested in this? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I think if I was going to go and have myself a bank, I would probably not choose this one. Um, I would probably choose Lloyd's from the UK because I think they're all quite cheap at the moment. And that bit of extra cheap that comes from NatWest isn't really worth it to me for the extra risk. I can understand why it would be to some people, and I can see that makes me sound slightly hypocritical owning Citigroup, which is the kind of higher risk of the cheap uh, currently US banks. To that point, I do own more B of A than I own of Citigroup. So um, I guess maybe I think when it's cheap enough, that extra risk isn't worth reaching for. wouldn't necessarily disagree with someone who said it was. Steve, are you that person? You know, I might be. Uh, NatWest's been on my um, mm. watch list for for quite a while. I, I was I was definitely more interested in Barclays for a period of time, but uh, I went off um, Barclays after I realised my initial sort of thesis for them being probably the best bank to navigate a bond crisis uh, turned out to be that uh, none of them were any good at navigating a bond crisis. So uh, <laughs> I. I I cut that one off with a decent win actually before before everything everything went to to shit, but um, NatWest. I mean, you can see why it's collapsed in share price. Forget the Farage stuff. There's this there's figures here that are genuinely worse than they were um, the the just the nine months uh, last year. So yep. we're looking at the first three quarters. Operating expenses are up. Return on tangible equity is down, uh, and um, it just even looking at their um the difference between their average cost of total deposits that's creeping up i mean q4 2022 it was 0.5% that is the amount uh, that they they're paying on deposits that's already up to 1.8 now rates have gone up faster but at the moment there's a lot of political pressure for banks to close that gap between the uk base rate and what they're paying out so that 1.8 could quite easily and conceivably become 3.6 so um you know there's there's that there's definitely that sort of outside influence here but but they're looking like they're doing all right steve i mean uh total income 14.3 billion uh they're Capital ratios look pretty strong. Their impairment rate is below 20 basis points. Uh, the payout ratio on their distributions is about 40%, which gives them a lot of capacity for buybacks. They're, they are buying back stock at quite a heavy rate, Steve. I mean, I'm just looking down this uh, list now uh, that they've posted just over the last couple of days, Steve. They've bought 92,000 of their stock, 34,000, 96,000, and then the day before they purchased 222,000, 81,000, 200,000. They're buying back their stock heavily, and it is cheap uh, at the moment. And it's, uh, it, you know, it looks like a pretty decent business. I, its credit ratings all look 
fairly stable. Uh, the worst one is with the S&P. We've got it as a BBB plus, um, but it's an A everywhere else, uh, apart from Ulster Bank. Um, it looks okay to me, Steve. I could I could buy this if I was after a bank. Uh, you know, this is one of the ones I, I, I could definitely buy. Yeah, yeah, they're buying back stock, which always raises an interesting question of who is selling it at these prices, because we all agree it's cheap. The only question is whether it's staying cheap or whether it's going to turn back towards being something, uh, I guess, more normal. And one answer is the UK government is busy unloading its um, stake, which is uh, fine. Uh, That's a good thing for NatWest. If they can get that government out of their shareholder uh, pool and they can do it at a cheap price, that is a win uh, for them in the medium to long term here. So in some ways, look, a low share price really helps them if they've got a willing seller, which the government appears to be, because you know rely on the UK government for whoever is in charge to sell this thing at the wrong time, uh, basically, to watch it at a quid and sell it at 47p or wherever it is at the moment. Might be less than that even. Um, but uh, yeah, I think there's, there's a decent bit going here. I mean, timing the bottom is tricky in this case, but will it be worth more in five years' time than it is now? I find it hard to see how it wouldn't be, one way or another, uh, either because of that buyback thing going on or because that dividend yield gets too good or just um, because uh, rates level off and, and the impairments slow down. And, and to bring it back full circle, I guess, to where we started here, um, you could view the increasing rates on their loans as simply being um, the the, the uh, increase in prices for Unilever, for Reckitts, etc. And yes, some of these loans are going to go bad. That is when the volume drops off at a, at a consumer um, package company. Uh, and that's essentially what we're going to see here. So your gamble, I guess, is can they keep that return on tangible equity around 15%? If they can do that, that's good. If they can keep their cost income ratio, which is what they're guiding to do, of being less than 50%, then that's really, really good. If they can keep their um, uh, their capital ratio strong, which they, they've weakened slightly, but if they can keep them strong um, and, and way above, you've got that sort of safety net uh, in case anything uh, uh, does go wrong. Um, I think it looks... It looks okay, Steve. The, the the thing that will kill you here in an investment is if the government does step in and tells the banks to lift the rates on everything. So, you know, if, they, if they're saying, you know, you can't be, even if they said something like, yeah, you can't be less than half of the rate of the, the current bank, the bank rate on savings account, they can't, that, that would kill these companies because they're, they're sitting on, you know. It's going to close they're, to triple them, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Their, yeah. So Their they, interest that, expense, yeah. These these the these banks are making big dollars on the people who are sat there with millions in an account at not point not one percent in the savings account. They forgot to, and it, they might not be people with that level of money in there, but it would add up to that money uh, definitely across the people who do so. Um, yeah, yeah uh, not Nigel that, Farage that anymore though. <laughs> yeah, well, bollocks to Nigel Farage. He is he is head wunsch banker. Mm, I think I might be part of the problem here. I mean, I've been aggressively spending out of my NatWest account and using the double roundup thing to get into that 6% saver. I might be a, a large part of the reason that's pulling them up from whatever you said, 0.5% to uh, 1.5 on their cost of deposits. Uh, and I'm not sorry. So there, um, I'm going to get a dividend out of that company without even owning any shares. Uh, 
obviously I'm not doing that. I realise that interest is not the same thing as a dividend. Please don't at me on that when everyone else says it is. Uh, go and take on them instead. But thank you to Tom's personal finance for that question. That was a really interesting one. I enjoyed having a look at NatWest, as you can tell. Um, I'm off to go and have a bank right now because it's uh, close to 10 o'clock in the evening um, and I need some help sleeping. Uh, hope you enjoyed the show. Anyway, uh, I've been Steve. He's been Steve. We will see you next time on the next Playing Footsie show. Bye for now.